listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Good morning. Yeah, it's good to see you this morning. I uh, appreciate that, Chris. Thanks for reading uh, Psalm 44 this morning. Uh, thank you for your prayers as well. I loved the part when you were praying that I would stay connected to the heart of the Father of God during this time, and I, I long for that for all of us to stay connected. So we are in Psalm 40, and we are kicking off. You might remember this if you've been here for a while. Last year, we did Summer in the Psalms. So we're kicking that off again uh, this year today. And I'm going to start with Psalm 40 because Psalm 40 has for a long time been one of my favorite psalms for a few different reasons. I'll get into that in just a moment. But I'm curious, you have the papers uh, in your hand or close to you. If you need a pen, if anyone needs a writing utensil, I guess is that what you call that? If you need something to, to make notes with, you would like something, I think we might have some pens in the back. Uh, you can grab one from a table back there. So you can, anybody need one or anyone not get a sheet that they need a sheet? Chris, are there pens back there? Are you helping? Good. Anybody need one? You can raise your hand. Chris will get it to you. All right, everybody's good. Everybody brought, oh, here's, I see one hand. I see that hand. Any other hands? Hands over here. Okay, good. But I'm curious, as we get into Psalm 40, as Chris read that for us earlier, maybe you read along on the paper or just on the screens, I would be curious of what word or phrase stood out to you. As we read, was there something that was significant for you that maybe, I heard this, just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to answer, Yeah. But just for a moment, just take a look at that silently and uh, take a look and see what word or phrase might have stuck out to you during that time. What seems significant? What part was there something that felt like the Spirit was tapping you on the shoulder to say, pay attention to here? Was there a part that stood out to you that you would prayerfully ask the Father to allow his word to refresh you this morning? I love the song we sung earlier, to tune my heart to thee to recalibrate our hearts to who he is. Maybe earlier, you're like I often am in church when someone's reading like that. Maybe as Chris read, your mind wandered. Maybe you were distracted thinking about something else and nothing stood out to you because you weren't really focused at that time. Can I just say that's okay? Would you prayerfully be willing to bring that before the Lord as well? And say, Father, just meet me where I am. I was distracted. I didn't hear if someone asked what psalm we're in, I wouldn't even know right now. <laughs> we're in Psalm 40. If that's you, can you just bring that before the Father as well and say, this is where my mind, this is where my heart is right now. I'm distracted. I'm thinking about other things. And would you allow him to meet you here in this time? So I'm just give you just a few seconds. Circle a word or just write that word down that stood out to you. All right, David, you get first chance here. What word or phrase stood out to you? My heart fails me. Thank you. Anyone else? What word or phrase? Deliverance. Faithfulness. Delight. 
Give me an open ear. Deliverance. Steadfast love. Sorry? Blessed. Blessed. Anyone else? None can compare to you. It's amazing as we come in, holding these different places in our hearts and in our minds. I'm so, the older I get, the more the Psalms that I can relate, the more that I, I hold David's raw emotions and the things that he brings before the Lord, the more that I sin, the older I get. This go hand in hand, right? Anybody like me, you ever think, I thought I'd be further along than this by now. Yeah. And when I read Psalms, I'm just really, my heart is encouraged. One of the things, one of the reasons I love this Psalm, Psalm 40, it's been a favorite for a long time. It started back in the 80s, late 80s, when a band named U2 broke onto the scene. Anybody already have that earworm in their, in their brain? U2 put music to this Psalm. It's one of my favorites. Uh, the other day I was driving to Charlotte and I switched between, I put on the radio, it's about a four and a half hour drive, and I just listened to this passage just being read to me over and over again, and then switching from that to you too, and listening to, to them seeing that, their version of Psalm 40. So I love, I love their, their version of this. But the other reason is because I can relate to where David begins the psalm in verse one to where he ends up at the end. So in verse one, he says this, I waited, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. One version says it like this, I waited and waited and waited. And then in verse 13, we jump ahead a little bit. He's waiting patiently for the Lord in verse one. In verse 13, what does he say? Be blessed, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to, to help me. Yeah. Anyone like that? <laughs> Some moments I'm like, I've got this. And then seconds later, I don't got this. I believe, help my unbelief. Some moments, I'm, oh yeah, all right. Other moments, I'm, oh no. <laughs> I'm right back, and it happens so fast. Anyone else? So fast. Can I just say up front as we get into this, I'm gonna say a lot of things this morning that are way over my head. Much of what I'm gonna talk about, I have not arrived. I'm gonna suggest things, pull things out of the text that I believe are here, that are important, but I'm talking to me. I need this, all right? So that's where I am. I can relate so much to David. I think one of the reasons I love this psalm is because he starts off with, I waited patient for the Lord, and he gets to the end and is like, oh, come quickly, do haste, help me, right? And I think that's where we all live with that tension. All right, Psalm 40, jumping in verse one, and we'll highlight a few things with our time together. Let's dive in, here we go. Verse one, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. So obviously David's in trouble. He's in a pit. He cries out to God. And I want us to notice God's posture towards David as he's in this place. What is God's posture? What does God do? What's it say? He listens. He bends down. He stretches out. He listens. It's like when a kid is trying to talk to you. Maybe you're in a crowded room. I had this just happen a few weeks ago. I was in a place, and this kid came up 
They were four years old. They were small. They were trying to tell me something very significant, very important to them. And I couldn't hear them because of the, the noise. So I got down on my knees, faced eye level to hear. And we see God doing this. He bends down. He inclines. We have a God who hears. It makes me think of Hagar. Hagar was a maidservant to Sarah, Sarah and Abraham. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a child. It wasn't happening. They decided to take matters into their own hands. So there's scandal. There's broken relationships. There's hurt feelings. And Hagar decides to leave. And she's leaving. She's going to go off probably to her, thinking she's probably going to die. She's in the wilderness. She's all alone. And God shows up. And he asks her a couple questions, very interesting questions. He asks, he says, Hagar, where are you from? And where are you going? Great questions, right? And then he blesses her and he sends, he's going to send her back. And something very interesting happens here. Uh, Hagar gives God a name. And I was thinking about this morning. I was going through my notes. And if you're you know, one of the Bible, Bible geeks and you like to research this, I don't know if what I'm about to say is true. So just hold that for just a moment. Can I just ask you, I'm going to tell you what occurred to me, I think. But don't research it right now, okay? Can, if you're one of those people, can you just... Hold your time, make a note, and after the service, you can research this. But as I read what Hagar said about him, she calls him the God who, anybody remember? Hears. I think it's the first time God is named by someone. I think. Don't research it now, okay? (laughs) But I think Hagar gives God the first name that we hear. Because we will hear, God is my helper. He is the Lord who provides. He is the I am that he says to Moses. And then God gives her a name. So he is the God. He actually, Hagar says, he is the God who sees. That's who she names God. And then God says, I'm going to give you a son, and you're going to call his name Ishmael. And that's when God says he gives himself a name. You're going to name him that because I am a God who hears. He hears. To Hagar, this maidservant in the wilderness, all alone, and God bends down. He shows up, and he hears. So David when he's talking about the pit, he doesn't actually say what pit he's in. He doesn't say what it is exactly. When you read the story about David, if you're reading through the Bible, you might be in the Old Testament still, maybe coming through the life of David. Maybe you're in the Psalms now. We know that when we read the life of David, there are many threatening, emotionally hard, physical elements, physical dangers that he faced. He's running for his life. This could be one of those moments. The bog, it could have been something physical. It could have been something that keeps him from living a normal life like everyone else seems to be able to live. That has him really frustrated. It could have been his own sin that he just can't seem to shake. It might have been choices that he made that led to disastrous consequences. It could have been something emotional or relational hardships. One thing I know about my own life, when I feel like I'm in one of these areas, when I'm in the pit, when I feel stuck, when I'm in the mire, I'm in the muck, One of the things that happens to me is I get tunnel vision, right? All I can see is the wall. All I can see is the mud. All I can see is the darkness that's around me. And it's easy to get locked in on the problem or on the anxiety that I feel. That's all I can see. Everything becomes very black and white to me in those moments. I become very rigid. Someone says something small and I make a big deal out of it, right? I'm not sure if I want to go out to eat tonight. You've never loved me. I mean, I make a huge, (laughs) you've never cared about me. Right? No pointing, by the way. Like, that's not okay. Okay, so, yeah, I go there. I'm not patient. I'm like, I can't, I don't do this route. I'm not patient. All I want is to get out as fast as possible. 
And David says that God drew him out. He put him in a place with secure footing, a place that was solid. And obviously, this is the work of God that's doing this. David starts by using the word I, but he quickly switches to all the things that God is doing. What are those things? You can just look at verse 2 there. What does he say? What is God, what is God doing? He, what? Sorry? He drew me up. He, he set my feet on a rock. Verse 3, he put a new song in my mouth. God is at work. God is doing it. So I have a role, and God has a role. What's my role when I'm in these situations, when I begin to, this is all I can see, when I get into this tunnel vision place, when my head goes down and I just see the darkness? What is my role? My role is to wait, but not just for anything or anyone, specifically to wait for God. I wait. I hope. Paul in Romans chapter 8, he tells us that we are able to wait with hope, knowing that God is working even now. He is rescuing. He is redeeming. He will restore. We are loved. All this in Romans 8. All the creation groans, waiting for the day when his glory, when God's glory will be fully revealed. We are not without hope. But when I'm in a pit, it is hard to hope. (laughs) When I'm in a pit, it's very hard for me to hope. Instead of patient humility, I tend to move towards entitled demands. I become bitter or cynical. All temptations, if you read through the Psalms, are temptations that David felt. But hope believes something about the cross. Hope believes something about the resurrection. That his blood can redeem whatever pit I'm in, whatever circumstance that I feel, even my own sin, that he is going to redeem it. The resurrection means that whatever happens, he will restore everything. He's going to restore everything in a way that reveals his loving kindness. Someone mentioned the word loving kindness over here. But what if it goes bad? What if the pit that I'm in, what if it just goes bad? He will redeem it. That's what the cross tells us. But what if I don't, what if it doesn't go the way I really want it to go? What if it just goes south? Then I join the spirit and I join all of creation in waiting with hope. That's my role. The role that he's given me when I'm in the pit is this, patience, humility, and hopeful waiting. And then it's God's lean to do what? To lean down, to hear, to draw me out to make my steps secure. And then verse three, as we said already, he puts a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Notice the direction of our worship. It is towards God, right? Worship realigns, retunes our hearts, recalibrates us, our hearts, to God's worth and to his greatness. I heard an interview just the other day. They were talking about worship songs and they said they were looking at them, and so many of the songs that were, they were the ranking of songs, I'm not even sure how they rank worship songs, but as they were ranking them, they were, they were saying, how the, I think it was the first 60, the, the focus of the worship song was more about how we are blessed than it was about who God is. It was till they got to song 61 before it was focused. And I, I don't want to slam or put other things down, but I, thought, I didn't research it myself. I just heard someone on the internet in an interview, so I guess they were right. But, but the focus was not, the focus on so often is not so much on, on God. And this is David, he's worshiping God. God is great. And we can recalibrate our hearts to his worth, to his greatness. He is the one that rescues. He is the one that draws us up. In verse two, in order to get out of the pit, we need something from above us to bring us up. The leverage has to be from above us. Right? 
You can't reach under your feet and pick yourself up. Right? Like no one's been able to do that yet. Again, don't try it right now. I'm going to prove them wrong. Right? I know people like that. There are no self-made Christians. There are no self-made followers of Jesus. You cannot put your hands under your feet and lift yourself up. And then what's the result of worship? When we are, find ourselves in this place where our heart is, when he puts a new song, he puts the song there. He puts a new song in our mouth. What happens? What's the result of our worship? What's the result? What's that? You can answer. Many, yeah, others will trust. Many others Others will put their trust in the Lord, not just their trust, but they will see and fear. In other words, they will also recalibrate to the reality of God's worth, to his weight, and to his glory. And in humility, when I wait, and when I allow him to do his work, then there's a song, there's worship that pulls me towards God that also pulls other people towards God. It's interesting, in verse 9, God, David is going to speak, he's going to tell some things about God, but in this, in the first instance when we start out, he begins with what God is doing in him. He will tell the congregation the glad news of God's deliverance, and there's a place to talk. Obviously, I'm doing that right now. There's a place to do a sermon. There's a place to teach a lesson. There's a place to give advice. There's a place to be curious and ask some questions. There's a place to tell others about God. But where does David start? Before David teaches, before he gives advice, or preaches a sermon, or tells the truth, before he comes up with a list of four ways to get out of the pit like he did, he sings. He worships. I was talking with someone recently. Uh, they called. And there was someone in their life that was doing something wrong that they didn't like, and they felt the need to tell them, and they were going to tell them what they were doing wrong and what it was that they thought the truth was that they needed to hear. And they told me that they thought the other person needed to hear this and they were going to tell them the truth. And this person they were talking to, they were going to tell them because for their own good, of course. So they were moving towards them in this way. They had some advice. They were going to pull them back to good things. And the whole time I was listening to this person, I was thinking, okay, I hope they don't ask me what I think. And that's when they asked me what I thought. Right? And in that moment, I was patient right up till then. I was listening. I was, mm-hmm. And then in that moment, I thought, okay, now they just asked me what I thought. And I began to struggle a little bit because I wasn't very patient with them. And I prayed, oh, Lord, come quickly. Help. What's going on in me, as this person shares? And I, I was thinking, you know, I'm hearing a lot about fear and trust, that part of the verse. I'm not hearing a lot about worship. They don't seem to be coming at this from a place of a new song in their heart. They got the see, they got the fear, they got the trust part, they got all that part down with a little bit of willpower thrown in. But it seemed to be missing humility. It seemed to be missing the humility that draws us out and who puts a new song in our heart. There was no awe or wonder. There was no worship. There was no song. They were not fueled by worship. They were fueled by frustration and anger and disappointment at what this other person was doing wrong. Do you hear me? They, <laughs> I was talking to this person, and I went, oh, Lord, have mercy. I <laughs> am fueled by frustration and anger and disappointment as this person is dumping all of their anger, frustration, and disappointment on me, and they're stopped being in, even in my own heart all in worship. 
So I prayed, Lord, come quickly. They wanted advice, but what should I say? So I said, hey, I'm experiencing a lot of frustration in you towards this other person that's doing something wrong. I'm wondering, where do you see God at work in them? And I'm wondering what song God might be putting in your heart this morning that stirs you to worship him more than being frustrated by someone not doing it right. Do you hear the question? Think about it for just a moment. I'm wondering what song God might be putting in your heart that stirs you to worship him more than being frustrated by someone else who's not getting it or doing it right. So one more thought about the song that God puts in our mouth. As we look at this, we realize that the song comes after the pit, but it comes from a place where we are in need. It comes from a place of rescue. It comes from the pit. A song that causes others, many others, to move their trust from wherever it was to God. The song that we sing comes from a place where we were rescued from the pit. In other words, the song comes from scars in our lives. Are you with me? The song comes from scars in our lives. We all have scars from times we've been in the pit. We all have stories to tell. We all have a verse to contribute to the song. And here's the thing. Your scars, your story, it's not just yours. It belongs to all of us. We all have stories of broken relationships, of choices that we've made that have hurt others or ways that we've been hurt. We all have stories of sickness and of harm and of panic. We all have stories that where our hope and faith was stretched that we still hold before God that we hold before the cross, before his blood, and that we hold at the tomb and say, here I am. Anybody have a story this morning? Anybody have a story from the pit? Anyone have a scar that tells a story of God's faithfulness and of his love? Anyone have a place that you can hold before the cross and you hold before the tomb, trusting, God, will you redeem this? God, will you restore this? God, is there a song in this? What song has God put in your mouth, a praise that invites us, many of us, to trust God? Maybe you don't hear the song yet. Maybe you're still there. Maybe you're still, the focus is not on him. It's still on the issue. I would ask you this question, and, and maybe you have a moment. You can just write your answer down. What song do you hope to sing? What hope do you long for God to put in your heart? Does that question make sense? What song do you hope to sing that tells his story? Just take a moment and jot that down. If you have notes, if you need a pen, or just ask it in your heart. What song when you're in the pit do you hope to sing? might need more time with that later. You can come back and visit it another time. It's a great question to hold before God. Here's the thing. Here's something I can know about God because of the pit. There's something I would not know otherwise. There's a song that I have because of the pit that tells me something about God that I would not be able to sing otherwise. But here's the other thing. There's something I will know of God, about God, because of the song that you sing. There's something about God because of your story, because of your pit story, of your rescue story, that I will know about God because he has put that song in your heart. Don't hide that part of you, please. Because it's part of my story too. Whatever your story is, that's part of my story now because we're brothers and sisters. We're one body in this together. 
This is one of the reasons that we do small groups like DNA, one of the reasons we do things like life groups. It's a space where we can share in humility and honesty the song that God has placed in us. And I think this is why Paul tells us, when you come together, sing psalms. Read psalms together, sing psalms together, but sing songs. Sing the song that God's put in your heart, right? So what about your life, your scars, your story is meant to reveal something about God? What's your song? Sing it, please. I need to hear it because there's something about your song that tells me something about God that I can't know otherwise. I'll be invited to worship. I'll be invited to turn towards God as my help instead of toward the strategies that I use to make my life work. What's your song? Verse four says this, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Someone said blessed right back here. I love that word in this state, in this verse. Blessed the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. One thing about the proud, one thing about the proud is they only have self to offer. They don't have anything else. The proud, let me rephrase that, me, in my pride, I say things like I can do it myself with resources that will get me what I want. I mean, if God wants to resource me, that's fine. If God wants to help me a little bit, that's fine. But I want the resources. I want to be able to do it. The proud of me says I can do it with God's help, but I want his help on my terms usually. Anyone else there And how I go about living my life? In my pride, in my pride, I have a tenacious commitment to manage my life without ever really having to trust God. I have a tenacious commitment to manage my life without ever really having to trust God. Namely, to be able to live my life without being humiliated again, or to stay comfortable in whatever resources seem available to me that will work to stay out of pits. I want to live my life in a way that I never have to go in another pit. Because when I'm getting to those places, if I'm honest, it doesn't seem like God will come through for me in the ways that I think I need him to. I know that God rescues But when I get into those situations, I'm often in a place where I don't know how to manage it and I feel overwhelmed and I don't reach for anything. So I turn to the proud, something that seems more reliable to God, something that I can have now without the risk of waiting, without the risk of humility, without the risk of hope, because hope feels risky. It seems like the proud have better solutions that I don't have. It seems like the proud have better solutions that don't involve death and resurrection. And I want a shortcut. I just want out. I heard one person say it this way. Worry keeps your heart from the deepest level of imagination of how God can work. Did you catch that? Worry keeps our heart from the deepest level of imagination of how God can work. Worry denies the resurrection and the cross. Worry is treasonous to the gospel. Worry is treasonous to the gospel. When I heard that, I went, uh-oh, because I'm there often. Oh, Lord, have mercy, right? Here are a couple signs that I'm going, uh, if I'm going astray to the proud, if I'm going after a lie, a lie, there's a few signs in my life. Maybe you have some in your life too. There's some indicators, some dashboard indicators for me that if I start doing this, it means I'm turning to the proud, that I'm going after a lie, and that I'm not putting my trust in God. So I wrote just a couple of them down. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you have different ones than I do. You can write your own down. Here's mine. Here's one of mine. When I 
am starting to go straight to the proud. Here's kind of one of the signs that I have. I start to go into image control. When I start looking at my life, maybe I'm in the pit or I'm starting to think that I start to worry or something's not gonna go the way I want it to do, I go into image control. I start to inflate myself to others. I spin to the positive. When I tell stories, I make myself look good and others not as good as me. Anyone else do that? You have to raise your hand. I was in a conversation just a couple of days ago and I was, I was actually at a table, it was at lunch, and the guy sitting here and the guy sitting here knew each other really well, and I was sitting between them for somehow I ended up there. And they were having this conversation, and both of these guys were really significant people. They had really significant roles, they're very important people, and they were having this conversation as if I wasn't there. And I felt very small. I felt that I wasn't very significant. I felt invisible. And finally, I had this one moment where I could break into the conversation just a little bit. And I kept having to, I couldn't eat really because they were like talking this way if I moved down to take a bite. So I actually, I literally picked up my plate and moved back so that they could have the conversation without my head being in between them, right? And finally, I got a chance. I was going to get to say something. And when I got a chance to talk, you know what I did? I told a funny story. I told a funny story about something that had happened recently where I actually embellished I embellished a few facts with artistic license to make the funny story uh, funnier, right? It was a story that I thought would make me look significant, that would make them laugh, that would help them delight in me, that would let them see that I was significant too. And I walked away a little bit later and I thought, man, that story was way too long. <laughs> like now, I shouldn't have said anything. I should have chosen a different table to sit at when I saw those two guys sitting there. I shouldn't have not have sat at that place. My water bottle, my uh, drink was already sitting there, so I, I kind of was there. They sat down after my water, water bottle was there. I shouldn't have sat at that table. I should have got my bottle and left and went somewhere else. I bet they wish I wouldn't have sat there too. So then I made a vow. Next time I'm in this situation, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk, and then no one will think that I'm stupid. Anybody else with me on this at all? Not that think that I'm stupid, but like do this type of thing, all right? Yeah. That was me going straight to pride, to pride, right? I was going straight to an independent, self-managed, self-protective, self-promoting strategies. I was going to proud strategies to make myself feel better in that situation. Then I started to compare myself to others in ways that make me cynical or bitter, but not worshipful. If there would have been someone listening in on our conversation who desperately needed to hear the gospel, there would not have been anything from me that would have pointed them towards worship. There was no song in my conversation. That's one way I know I'm turning towards proud. Another way is I move towards finding resources for shalom with a commitment to stay in control. I moved toward finding resources for Shalom with a commitment to staying in control. One author said, there's a certain amount of peace that comes with being in control, but it's never a life-giving peace. It's never life-giving. In this state, I start to demand that others cooperate with me, with my vision of Shalom. I demand that others make decisions and choices around me that work for me with little curiosity or awe for how God might be working in their lives. I demand from others, I take life from others with little awe or curiosity about how God might be working in their lives. I lose my vision for them, knowing, I lose my vision of, of them possibly even knowing God. 
I have no greater vision for them than them treating me like I'm the one that matters most. I didn't have a vision for either one of these guys, knowing God. I had a vision for them seeing me as someone on their terms. I wonder what damage my commitment to stay out of the pit does to my relationships. Maybe you could jot that question down. What damage does your commitment to stay out of the pit do to relationships? What alliances have you made with the proud? What alliances have you made to assure your own self-protection and your own self-preservation? What are your alliances? That's not the only ones I made. I made a few more. I'm going to tell you three other alliances that I made this week. You ready? Maybe you can relate. That's why I'm telling you some of these. When a clerk told me it was going to take longer than I expected, I could have responded with kindness about how overworked and stressed they were because of being shorthanded. I could have worshipped and allowed my heart to be moved with humility. I could have waited patiently. Instead, I made an alliance with pride. I made an alliance with pride. And I mumbled under my breath, but loud enough for them to feel my contempt that I had places to be. I made an alliance with pride. I met a friend for breakfast, a friend who got a job as someone else that I know, someone who I'm actually often intimidated by, their leadership style. And instead of celebrating with them their new job and this path that God was calling them to, instead of celebrating with them and, being, and wondering what God might be up to in their life, I made an alliance with pride that would put their new boss down and make me look wise. I use Christian language. So I concealed it, I think, a little bit. I said that I didn't think his new boss was a full-blown narcissist, but he did have some of those tendencies, so he might want to watch out. And I'd pray for him. (laughs) When another friend called with a difficult choice and wondered what I might think about their choice, I could have been gracious and honest with my opinion. But I made an alliance with pride. And I chose the route of people-pleasing to protect myself I didn't want them to have a bad opinion of me. I didn't want to lose my friendship. I didn't want him to not like me anymore because I didn't agree. So I made an alliance with pride. And I went a different way. I didn't choose the cross or the resurrection. I didn't believe that God could redeem. In each of these cases, I didn't trust God. I believed a lie that saying something with contempt would be better than kindness. I believed the lie that putting someone else down and making me look wise would be better than offering life. And I believe the lie that trying to please would keep my relationship safer than allowing God to protect me. And these are just the ones I'm willing to share with you this morning. <laughs> there are a lot more. Right? Do I really believe, as David says, that I'm more blessed by trusting God than my own way of self-promoting or self-protecting ways of relating? Often no, if I'm honest. What alliances do you make with pride? But here's good news, right? But thank God. But praise God. Verse 5 comes. Praise God that in all of this, God continues to rescue. He delights. Jason, I love that you brought that word out. He delights to rescue and to restore. Verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than could be told. Praise God. He delights to rescue. He delights to restore. He delights to redeem. He is coming for us. He is at work. 
In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book is written of me. I wish we had a lot of time to talk about that. We're not. I delight to do your will, oh my God, your law is within my heart. There is something in me that is being changed, that desires to put the way that the Father relates on display. In verse 8, David says that God's law is within his heart. It's the same language that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel will use to talk about the new covenant. When Jesus comes, and through his death and resurrection, there's a new covenant that his law, my desires are changed. Actually, something in me changes. Something beyond duty, something beyond rules. My desires change. There is now something in me that longs to put God's character on display. There is something now in me that believes that trusting God's wondrous deeds as, full, as truly blessings that I desire. That what God is doing in the life of someone else, that I want to be blessed by that. That I want to share that. And then what I do, verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. Here's the thing. We start with verse 1, humility. Humility leads to worship, and it leads to movement. Worship leads to movement towards others, to bless them by inviting them to where life is found. Something alive in me desires to see others know God. What is alive in you? What is it that is in you that longs, that desires, that calls out, that wants other people to know God? We want others to know God's heart, as Chris prayed for me today. His steadfast love, his faithfulness, his delight to redeem, to rescue, and to restore. We can't keep it to ourselves. We go from humility to worship to desire that other people know him. Worship always, catch this, worship True worship. Worship always moves us towards others because we get caught up in his greatness. We move towards others with it. You've got to see this, we tell others. You've got to hear this. You've got to know him. When we experience his steadfast love and his mercy, there is something in me that wants others to experience it. Always. There is something in me that desires to do his will through me. Did you catch that? There's something that has changed in me that longs for his will to be done through me towards other people. In other words, when we experience his steadfast love and mercy, there is something in me that wants others to experience his love through me. I long to represent him to others. I become a representation of his steadfast love that says this is worth living for. You've got you've to know him. Unfortunately, the opposite is true as well. Without the humble heart, Without a humble heart that is rescued, without worship, I'm left with duty and obedience through willpower that demands sacrifice and judging and comparing, and that's all I have to offer, rules and duty. There's no life. When I see his steadfast love, then I come to him and I cry out, have mercy. Without that, I only have promises to do better next time. And David's past that, right? David realizes that He's way beyond promising to do better next time. Verse 11, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your, stead and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Thank God that we have his love and kindness and his faithfulness that he will preserve us. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. So what's the answer? to the sin that I feel that I can't get out, that I have no promises to get better next time. Be blessed, O Lord, verse 13, to deliver me, O Lord. Make haste to help me. 
My only hope is to cry out to God, oh Lord, have mercy. My only hope is to cry out to God, oh Lord, have mercy. And what's his response? You've got it. There's mercy. Verse 14. We're almost finished here. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who see to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who do light in my hurt. So who does David trust to protect him from those who will harm him? It's church. You can give the church answer. God. Yeah, good. Thank you. It's God. David doesn't have to plot his revenge. He doesn't have to find ways to punish them. He doesn't have to find ways to get back to them. He doesn't have to find ways to let them know that they were wrong and he was right. He doesn't have to do things like the silent treatment or sighs or shakes of the head. He can trust God. He can relate. He can move towards connection, not towards punishment, not towards revenge. Verse 15, let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. Thanks, Chris, for reading that with good emphasis earlier today. Aha-type people are telling a different story than David is telling. Can you just say that? Aha-type people are telling a different story than David is telling. Aha-people are not telling a life-giving story. They're not telling a story of death and resurrection. They're telling an aha story. Gotcha. We got them. Aha, people have fouls and records of other people's faults, never their virtues. Aha, people don't see God working. They don't see what God is doing. Aha, people are not looking at his steadfast love. Aha, people are not seeking after the Lord. They're seeking after catching you. Everyone, anyone live with this gut feeling that you're just living life, waiting for the blue lights to come on behind you in the rearview mirror for someone to get you? I was driving recently, and I was pulled left because I had a light to do so, but sitting at the light here was a, a, a police, an officer, a cop, I guess. I don't know what the right word to say is. So, so then their light turned green, so now they're behind me, but they're not really close yet, but I could see them kind of far away, and I had this idea. I'm going to pull into this parking lot so that they go by because I'm not doing anything wrong, but they're going to find something wrong. And I just had this aha moment in me. Here's what's interesting. God is saying that there, I mean, uh, David is saying there's people that are aha. They want to get you. They want to find fault. They always want to be the, oh, we caught them. They're doing something wrong. Here's the thing. God's not the aha type. Do you hear this? God is not the aha type. He's separate from that group. We don't have to live life waiting for the blue lights in the river mirror. The voice of aha, though, is often very loud in my in my mind, aha, you don't matter. These guys matter. Caught you. Aha, you messed up. And now you're going to be humiliated. Aha, you're not doing enough. Aha, people won't think you're significant if you aren't better. Do better. Aha, your sermon's over time. Aha brings shame. It never brings life. God is not in the aha crowd. Do you hear that? How did he get there in our hearts? You weren't having aha God? Can I invite you to a God that brings life, not shame? 
16. But all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. The aha crowd doesn't say great is the Lord. They say gotcha. Their focus is in the wrong place. Those who seek God, they rejoice. It's the opposite of aha. Those who love God's rescue and salvation, they love and they worship and they can't help breaking out in song saying great is the Lord. Those who seek God don't have time for ahas. They're looking for something else. And all of that sounds really good if this passage, Psalm 40, ended at verse 16, but it doesn't, and I'm glad it doesn't. If we could just live in that place, that would be great. Verse 17, we'll end here. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. I've got this. I don't got this, right? I can relate. But here's what we can trust. God has God has us, and he delights to deliver. We're going to take communion in just a moment here. And as we do, I want to remind us, we're not going to look at the passage this morning, but in Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews looks back at these verses in in Psalm 40. And the author of Hebrews, he says that Jesus fulfilled the sacrifices that could not, all the sacrifices that were happening in the Old Testament, they could not cleanse us once for all. They needed to be done over and over again. But Jesus cleanses us. He fulfilled what we could not do. We could not make ourselves better by trying harder. We're over our heads. But Jesus completely and fully did God's will. That is to put the Father on display and to bring us to him. In doing so, he says, And I love this passage in Hebrews 10. It says, I will remember their sins no more. In other words, no more ahas. We are fully forgiven. He's not waiting to catch us. He delights to redeem, to save. He has us. What a great way to celebrate that together as we come and we remember that his broken body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out for us, that our sins are forgiven. And in humility, we can hope, we sing and we celebrate, we are forgiven. Let's celebrate that good news together. I'll pray for us and then come and receive the bread and the juice. If you haven't done that with us before, I'll just say here how it happens. There's bread on the table. There's juice in the bowl. You can just take a piece of the bread and tip it. And that's how we do it here. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your loving kindness, for your steadfast love. Thank you for your word. This time that we have to celebrate. I pray for hearts that are humble and that are trusting, that are filled with hope because of the cross and your resurrection. In Christ's name, amen.